Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. As you can see, we're here in the worship center where a lot of rebuilding is going on. I'm glad you get to see this. There's just a lot of cool stuff happening. You know, I think about all of the uh, work that God wants to do here in my life, in our lives, in the lives of folks who have yet to even find out that Jesus loves them. I also have a little bit of nostalgia when I think about how God has used this place and the people involved in the ministry here in my own life. I think of Dr. Richard Strauss and Reverend Dennis Keating and the years of teaching and, and beginning afresh with uh, Lead Pastor Ryan in this place. Uh, I smile a little bit when I look around and I see the theater style seating. It's kind of like retro for me because back at uh, 7th and Escondido Boulevard, our first permanent facility, we had theater style seating. Some might call this the ancient future. There's also a lot of memories in this room. One of my most significant ones is that Nancy and I got married on the stage that used to be down there. It was the place where she and I stood together and I committed my love and my loyalty to her, my devotion. And that's why it made sense to come here and do the filming. You see, this is the last of our <clears throat> series in rebuilding our life out of the book of Nehemiah. Today, we're going to be in chapter 9, but before you go there, let me set a little bit of the context of what's going on. Uh, when you think about devotion in Scripture, I don't know where your mind goes, but that concept of a wholehearted commitment, of a deep and meaningful devotion to someone uh, is one that really permeates the Scripture in a lot of ways. I love the way that uh, David said it to his son Solomon. As for you, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. In my studies, I found out that there are a lot of words in the Bible for this concept of commitment or making vows or covenants or devotion. Uh, I want to use this definition in our time together. Devotion is the ongoing process of expressing love and loyalty to God. Let me say that again. Devotion is the ongoing process of expressing love and loyalty to God. It involves adoration. It involves intimacy. It involves things like dedication and enthusiasm, of faithfulness, of sincerity. There's so much in this concept, so much that you might say, okay, Greg, I got it. Uh, we're supposed to be devoted to God, and I, I, I got that part of it. The question I'd really like us to ask ourselves is, what's the state of our devotion? Uh, is it waxing? Is it waning? Is it on life support or is it supporting our life and those around us? How's your devotion doing? Because we'll, we'll dive into how to rebuild it and what it means. But I want us to start with that idea in mind. Uh, God, what are you asking me? 
What do you want from me when it comes to being someone who expresses my love and loyalty to you on an ongoing basis? Uh, Nehemiah 9 focuses in on this visual progression. First of all, we're going to look up to a great God and to worship and adore him. Then we're going to look back, remember what he has done. Then we're going to look around and see what he is doing. And finally, we're going to look forward, forward to the future in the sense of God, how do we continue a life of devotion to you even then? Uh, let me set the uh, context a little bit for our study. Last week we were in chapter 8. Uh, we looked at how the people celebrated after having read God's word and remembering what he did. It was a delightful week. Chapter 9 begins two days later. And there's a whole different attitude here, one of solemnity and seriousness. Let me read in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day, three hours, and for another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. The first step in this process of rebuilding our devotion involves looking up and assuming a posture of humility. You may want to write that down. We start by looking up and assuming a posture of humility. You see, we've got a big God and he calls us to stay low before him with an attitude of humility. That celebration of the previous week is now followed by a uh, grasping of our shortcomings before God, their shortcomings before God, and what that meant for them. In my mind's eye, I see this ragged, harried, dirty, hungry group of people coming to the courtyard outside of the temple, clothes torn, dirt on their heads, humiliated by their sin and hungry for God's word. This posture of humility involves three things that we see in this short beginning section of chapter 9. First of all, they confessed their sin. It's simply they agreed with God. First uh, John 1, 9, we confess our sin. We say that, God, you are always right. <laughs> it's not me, because you yourself determine what right is. So they admitted their shortcomings and told God that he was right. At the same time, they couldn't get enough of the scriptures. For three hours, they stood and listened to the book of the law. Uh, they had developed a hunger for the word of God. The, the posture of humility involves learning. It's developing a hunger for God's word. And the only way I know how to do that is not to fill my mind with all the other things that would crowd out what he wants to tell me through what he has said in the scriptures. Uh, it's a really good thing to go on a media fast. I remember a season in my life, uh, a week in my life, where I tried to go without looking at media and how I was drawn back to it. Uh, that's a danger because we need space in our minds and our thinking to get the brain candy out and all the other stuff to allow God to have space to work in our hearts. 
I want to encourage you to uh, join us this year in reading through the, the Bible. And if you haven't started, I hope you will. You can catch up. Uh, we got a lot of time left ahead of us. Here's one of the things that I hope will happen, that there'll be days where you read the assigned chapters and you just can't stop because you want to know, well, what happens next? That a hunger for God will grow in you as part of this attitude of humility before God. So be humble, be hungry, and then be respectful. Worship God with all of your being. You see, after they had learned or, or listened to the scripture for three hours, then they took another three hours and bowed down before him. They worshiped him. They couldn't get enough of him. In that process, they adored him in that posture of staying low before him. Can't avoid the observation in those couple of verses that uh, devotion takes time, takes intentionality, takes energy, it takes resources. That's what's going to be required if we will be a people fully devoted to God. Uh, Jesus reminded us of that. You know, he said, look, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one or hate the other. You'll despise one or be devoted to the other. So in many ways, our question tonight is not only what is the intensity of my devotion and the depth of it to Jesus, but am I really committed to him? Or are there other things that have crept in and pushed out the priority of living a life of devotion? In verses 4 and 5 of the chapter, we see that the Levites who were <clears throat> reading, directing, guiding the Israelites at that point uh, cried with a loud voice. Now, there's a long list of their names. I'm not going to go and abuse all of them because when I get to heaven, I'm probably going to see some of these guys and I don't want to have to apologize to them. Sorry, I butchered your name. <clears throat> so there were Levites. And what did they do? They cried out to God with a loud voice. And here's what they said. I love this. They stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And you get the picture. They just spent three hours literally bowing before God in humility before him, staying low before him. And then the Levites say, get up. <clears throat> I love this. It's almost like the coach going into the Super Bowl and getting ready for the big game. Here it is, y'all. We've been preparing by seeking God through his word. We have sought his face. And now we're going to talk to him. We're going to tell him that we remember the kind of God that he is. So get up and let's get ready to pray was their challenge. And this ain't going to be no passive prayer. You know, before we dive into the contents of the prayer, I, I want you to notice the beauty in this passage of how hunger for God's word and the time spent talking to him in prayer, all with an attitude of humility, blend together to revitalize our devotion. You know, all talking to God or conversation without seeking his guidance and instruction can become confusing and, and even mystical at times. All study and learning facts from the Bible without seeking his face and wanting to connect with him intimately can become sterile and cold. See, God puts these two together and then he puts it in the context of they were together. They assembled themselves and did this. It's almost like doing life together is a crucial principle of God's life, of devotion. And I think you've heard that before here around Emmanuel Faith. 
Uh, being part of a life group is a high value. We've got uh, a new series starting with The Way, and we're starting brand new groups. Uh, I'd encourage you, uh, think about leading one, thinking about recruiting and forming one, and for sure be part of one, that we can do this together in prayer and in the study of his word with this attitude of humility, God, what do you got for us? Let me summarize it this way. Our devotion to God builds as we humble ourselves before him, we hunger for his word, and we honor him in prayer. Humble ourselves before him, hunger for the scriptures, and honor him in adoration. Look with me in verse 5 and the beginning of this prayer. It says, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And it begins the longest recorded prayer in all of scripture. Who'd have thought, all right? In the book of Nehemiah, here we have the longest prayer in scripture. And it starts with this exclamation of God's goodness and his greatness. Blessed be your glorious name, exalted above all blessings and praise. Uh, what are the superlatives you would use to address God? You know, you might join with Daniel in saying, uh, he's the great and awesome God. Or with David, how majestic is your name in all the earth, God? You might think about Paul he, stating to Timothy that God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who dwells in inapproachable light. I want to challenge you this week when you move into prayer. Pray big, will you? Uh, pray to a big God with big concepts and a big understanding of who he is. Prayer that doesn't recognize his majesty and his greatness is little tiny prayer. And I want us to be a church family of big prayer because we understand how big he is. So the starting point, rebuilding our devotion to God, <clears throat> is to humble ourselves before him. And that posture of humility while we look up at this great and awesome God. So we looked at uh, starting the process of rebuilding and revitalizing our devotion to God, our love and loyalty expressed on a daily basis by looking up and maintaining an attitude of humility Secondly, if we want to revitalize our devotion, I want you to write this down. We've got to look back and remember God's faithfulness. To look back and remember God's faithfulness. This takes us from verse 6 in chapter 9 all the way down to verse 31. And what we're going to get is a review of the entire history of the nation of Israel in their relationship with God from creation up to... Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the benefits of Nehemiah is that it was one of the last books written. So we get to see this whole Old Testament history in just these few verses. So hang on, here we go. Let's look back at what God has done and who he demonstrated himself to be, revealed himself to be to the Israelites. Verse six of chapter nine says this. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of the heavens, 
with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. <clears throat> the Levites start with this you know, declaration of God, you're the one who started it all, you made it all, and it's all for you. Genesis 1, God created. And verse 6 says, not only did he create, but he preserves. From everlasting to everlasting, God is the only God, the one true God, the maker of heavens and earth. And I love the way that we captured this in our revised statement of faith. Can I read that one little paragraph, the section on the Trinity? It says this, we believe there is only one God, creator of all things, eternally existing in three equal but separate persons, revealed to us in the Bible as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each one possesses the same divine nature and attributes and is worthy of worship, of confidence and obedience. The triune God is glorious, infinite and personal, perfect in holiness, in wisdom, in unity, foreknowledge, power and love. Now, you could use that statement as a really big prayer to God this week. Uh, go to our website, click on who we are and what we believe, highlight that paragraph, and just pray it back to him. Talking about big prayers to tell him, God, I understand what you have done. We often see God clearly in his creation, don't we? Uh, the bigness of it, the mountains, the ocean, the waves, the, the sunsets. But I, I may be weird, and, and don't answer that, okay? but I like the little things. My sister-in-law, Patty, taught my wife, Nancy, how to scuba dive. And then the two of them put lead weights on me and a metal tank that weighed 30 pounds and threw me in the ocean and said, you gotta come down here and see some of this stuff. And, and in the ocean, there are these little slugs. And when you think of a slug, what do you think? It's kind of slimy, ugly, and dark. They are gorgeous. They're called nudibranchs. The colors of the entire spectrum. They got this one that's called the Christmas nudibranch. It's all green and its little rhinophores are red. It's, it's amazing. I think about, uh, you tell me, how does a bumblebee fly? It's fat and has little tiny wings, and yet it flies. I think about the structure of a molecule or even of a cell. And one of the things that just blows me away is an electron. You put it in its sphere or orbital, and it acts like a particle. You put it in a cloud chamber and it acts like a wave. But physics says you can't be both. God was amazing how he made this place. And think about it. Much, if not most of what God has created, you haven't seen yet. Paul said it this way. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He created the heaven and the heaven of the heavens and all the host. We got some amazing things that we're gonna see about this creator God. Uh, remember, he is the creator. Uh, secondly, uh, the Levites remind us what happens from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book where God keeps his promises. You see, he's the God who chose Abraham. He gave him a new name. He made a covenant with him. And then it says in verse eight at the end, God, you have kept your promise for you are righteous. He who promised is faithful is the way that the writer of the book of the Hebrews said that. 
Then we go from Exodus to Leviticus in verses 9 through 15 here in Nehemiah 9, where we see how God provided for his people. Verse 9 says, uh, God, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry. You performed signs and wonders. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. Verse 12, you led them. Verse 13, you spoke with them. You gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You gave them bread from heaven in verse 15. You brought water out of a rock. <clears throat> you told them to go to this land, the land that you swore to give to them. You see, he's a God who provides. I love the imagery in the last of that verse there. Uh, in verse 15, the land that God swore to give them. I, I love the way that the New International says it. It's the land that, that he had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Now, we just saw a, a president and a vice president get sworn into office. And what did they do? They put their hand on a Bible, left hand. They raised their right hand and they promised. It's the image here in Nehemiah with God having his hand, left hand on himself, because he is the word, <laughs> his right hand raised and saying to the Israelites, look, I promise to take care of you. I will provide for you. Uh, then we go to chapter or verse 16 through 15 that takes us from the book of Numbers up to Joshua, where God <clears throat> demonstrated his strength and he gave victory to the Israelites. All of this in spite of the fact that they acted presumptuously. You see it in verse 16. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey. They were not mindful, not mindful of the wonders that God had performed among them. End of verse 17, but he didn't forsake them. Even though they committed great blasphemies. Verse 19, God, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Then you gave them kingdoms and peoples in every corner of the land. Verse 23, you multiplied their children. You brought them into the land. 24, you subdued the inhabitants. You gave them the land. And I love the end of verse 25. So they, referring to their forefathers, these are the Levites talking, they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. You know, they looked back at a God who gave them strength and supplies and then gave them victory in the land that he had promised to them. Hmm. The, uh, the contrast to all of God's goodness as we read through that little portion of chapter 9 is the behavior and the attitude that they had, their forefathers. In spite of all the amazing things that God had done, what? Um, they were a stiff-necked people. It's the picture of a farmer who's driving an ox, plowing a field, and the ox is no longer being guided by the farmer, that the ox's neck becomes strong and stiff and they refuse to go where the farmer wants them to go. God, in contrast, in their arrogance and their rebellion, it says he was forgiving and gracious and merciful and slow to anger and overflowed with love and an abundance that never stopped. So how are we doing? How are you doing? 
Are you mindful? Do you remember of God's, about God's goodness? Or do you have a neck problem? Is it getting stiff? And I hope you didn't miss in verse 20 that God gives us his good spirit to help us in this journey. It's like Jesus said, he, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. You see, the good thing is that God doesn't expect us to rebuild our devotion all on our own. He gives us his good spirit to guide us and to strengthen us and to help us. Then the Levites take us from Judges to Isaiah in verses 26 and 27, where God hears and he helps. He heard them and he helped them, even though they were disobedient and rebelled and cast God's law behind their back, it says in verse 26. God, you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who saved them. A direct reference to the judges, each in their time period, who brought Israel back and took them out of freedom and gave them victory, who saved them. Then the Levites remember the time period from Isaiah to Malachi where God did not give up on them. We see it in verses 28 through 31. It says in verse 28, but you know, after they had rest, after the last of the judges had brought rest to the land, they did evil again before him. And you abandoned them temporarily in their land, in the land of their enemies. But you, O oh God, heard them from heaven <laughs> many times. Don't you love that phrase? Many times in verse 28, you delivered them according to your mercies. Then you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Verse 29, yet they acted presumptuously. They didn't obey. They sinned against your rules. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And we end this historical travelogue by remembering that God is a God who will not abandon us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the same yesterday and today forever. So even when they acted presumptuously, God hung in there with them over and over again. You know, what about the chapters in your life? Do you think back and remember how God has been good to you? One of my older brothers here in the church encouraged me to sit down and think about my life and divide it into seasons. And each of those seasons to identify the high points and the valleys. And then to take those seasons and to look at what was God doing? What was he teaching me? What did I learn about him? It, it was a marvelous exercise. I'd encourage you in some way to think back and to remember what God has done. Even if just specifically that you simply write out the story of how you came to faith in Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I've met with a family and we were planning a memorial and I asked the question, so when did this person trust Jesus Christ as their savior? When did they become a Jesus follower? And there's kind of this blank look on the family that says, well, they went to church as a little person. Uh, don't let that happen to you. Let your children and your grandchildren 
Let your parents, your aunts and your uncles, your siblings hear the story of when you trusted Jesus. Uh, write it down, will you? And then share it with them. And, and why do I say that? This is why. Because our devotion to God builds when we remember his revealed character and his past work. Let me say that again. Our devotion to God builds when we remember his revealed character and his past work. So here's the summary to this point. We looked up, <clears throat> then we looked back. Now we're going to look around at the present day and see what God is doing. We look at it thirdly in verses 32 through 37 to notice what God is up to now. Verse 32 starts like this. It's a whole change of scene in a sense. It says, now, therefore, in this situation, the Levites are saying, as they're all gathered together in their torn and ragged clothes, let's look around now and think about what's going on. Now, therefore, our God, not the God of our forefathers, but our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem to you, God, <clears throat> or let, let not all the hardships seem little to you, God, the hardship that has come upon us. You have been righteous, they say, in everything. You've dealt faithfully, and yet we, speaking of themselves, have acted wickedly. They talk about, in verse 35, God's great goodness and the large and rich land in which they were living, but they were slaves there. You see that verse 36? but we're slaves this day. And then they talk about the environment of the land that they're in. It, its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and livestock as they please, and we're in great distress. The scene is the present. What's God doing now? And I want you to see three simple things as you look around in their situation. What was God doing? First of all, God's love was steadfast. It was tenacious. He was not given up on them. He had got them through the past. He was going to be with them in the present. He was there. Uh, secondly, God knew the situation. You know, they pray out to God. God, understand that our problems aren't little. They're really, really big. And I can see from God's perspective where he says, yeah, I know they're not little. Even your little ones, I care about them. At the same time, even if they were really huge problems, God is bigger than those. And the reminder to them and to us is the same. He is here with us just like he was with the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament. So his love is tenacious. He knows what's going on in our life. And thirdly, I want you to observe that choices matter. Did you hear in the text where they admitted with humility that it was their sin that put them in their, that situation. They owned it. That was what they had done. Their choices led them to the continued slavery and submission that they had to live in. You know, as I look around uh, today, look around our church family and what God is doing through y'all here in uh, North San Diego County and throughout the world, I, I want to tell you, I see God's hand at work. I see um, 
how you feed and take care of each other in crisis. I just had a series of meetings with our adult fellowship leaders and listening to their stories of why they're leading and how much they love God and are devoted to Him, what they want to see happen in their fellowship. An amazing group. I see people who are engaged in the public square, out there sharing the gospel unashamedly. God is doing amazing things today, and I'm grateful to be part of this church family. You know, at the same time, it's hard to miss the fact that we're in a pandemic and it has a big influence on our lives day in and day out. I feel uh, for the kids who can't get together and just be normal children and develop the relationships that make their lives meaningful and rich. I feel for our older folks who are isolated and alone. Um, Can I put it frankly? COVID stinks. COVID is not our fault. But at the same time, we have the responsibility of how we respond to it. See, we didn't make COVID, but are we allowing the environment in which we're living today to enslave us, either with an attitude of superiority, that I'm not gonna do those things, or, or an attitude of criticism, or an attitude of, of self-orientedness? You know, I don't like wearing a muzzle anybody more than anybody else does when I go out. But I wear one because I respect those who are vulnerable and I want to respect people who are concerned that they might catch this. It's just my way of simply saying, um, I know a God who cares and I'll do the same. You see, God still loves us. He loves us today with a great goodness. You see that in verse 35? His grace and his love for you is not puny. It's great. He's eager to listen and act with compassion. So look around you today and know that devotion to God builds. Catch this. Devotion to God builds as we choose to trust his love day in and day out. Can I say that again? Devotion to God builds as we choose to trust his love day in and day out. So we've seen that we rebuild our devotion to God by looking up to Him and staying low. Then by looking back and remembering what He's done and how He's revealed Himself. We rebuild our devotion to Him by looking around and seeing where He's at work, knowing that His steadfast love is with us. It it leads us to the only reasonable conclusion is that as we look forward, we can trust Him, that we can entrust Him with our lives. Let me say it this way. Uh, Rebuilding our devotion means that we look forward, we declare an enduring love and loyalty to Him. We declare an enduring love and loyalty. We find it in verse 38. It says this, because of all this, well, because of all what? Well, because of 1,500 years of God's faithfulness and His presence with them there that day, because of all that, 
They, the Levites, they said this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, the Levites and our priests. <clears throat> I, I want you to see three things here. First of all, uh, they made a covenant. They cut a covenant. It, it draws them back to the Abrahamic covenant where God asked Abraham to take an animal and cut it in half and then pass between those as an act of declaring, making a statement <clears throat> that they were committed together to fulfill the purposes of God's plan. Um, they made an enduring covenant. It's an interesting word here. It's not just your typical one. It has an emphasis that it's going to go on and it's going to go on. And then they put it in writing. Okay. They took a practical step to say, God, this moment in this way with our names and this writing, we commit ourselves to you that we might deepen and grow in our devotion to you. We don't find out what they committed themselves to until we go over to chapter 10 and verse 29, where it says they made an oath to walk in God's law, to observe and to do all his commandments, <clears throat> uh, to follow his rules and his statutes. You see, they looked to the future and they said, look, our devotion to God builds as we vow to walk in his way. I want to do something here. Uh, something we don't do very often, but we have the unique opportunity because we're in the middle of rebuilding. I want you, maybe you and your family, to write a letter of love and loyalty to God. No more than a page. I want you to sign it, put it in an envelope, seal it, and bring it here to Emmanuel Faith. We'll group all those letters together. And then before we build the platform over this vault, we're going to put those at the bottom of this vault as a corporate statement back to God. God, as we look to the future, we commit ourselves in love and loyalty to you. I mean, what better place to do that than where we gather and we pray and we worship, we connect with each other, we study and we learn. And my hope is that in the years that come, every time you and your family walk in here, there's this thought in the back of your mind, yeah, I've come to learn about him, to adore him, to worship him. And I made a vow that me and my family, we will do this. One last thing that I want you to notice. In the vow that they made in chapter 10, verse 29, they included a curse. The good news, there's no longer the need for a curse because Jesus took the curse. Galatians 3, he took the curse for us. He became the curse. You see, here's the good news. <clears throat> Today, you can begin a relationship, a personal, meaningful, life-giving relationship of love and loyalty with the God of the universe by simply recognizing that he loves you. That Jesus took the curse. He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. And that by admitting your need for him, trusting in what he has for you, you can have new life in him. I hope you'll consider that. 
because it's the beginning point of a life wholly devoted to the God who loves us so deeply. Let's pray. Um, Father, I thank you for the privilege looking in Nehemiah chapter 9. God, we look up to you in adoration how big and good you are. We do that with an attitude of humility and staying low. We know, God, who we are in light of your greatness. God, we look back and remember all the things that you've done for us and for our families to get us to this point. We remember, God, and we're thankful. I look around and see your hand at work in our brothers and sisters, your help in getting through the day, the hope, the strength, your good God. And God, together, we as a church family want to express our commitment back to you a commitment of love and loyalty that even that vow would deepen our devotion. Oh God, thank you again for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our service.